This is Charging Ahead, a four-part podcast series where we will delve into the public perceptions of EVs, our attitudes towards motoring, and if we can gauge and predict EV adoption rates based on how we view motoring here in New Zealand. Along the way, we will hear from respiratory professionals on air quality, members of the public from all walks of life on how they view EVs, and we'll speak to EV owners themselves. You'll no doubt also hear the letters E and V far too many times. In this episode, we'll take a look at the history of electrified vehicles and speak to someone who was one of the first EV adopters here in Dunedin about the buying experience of something no car dealer at the time was offering. You'd be forgiven for thinking the electric vehicle was some sort of fancy new futuristic way of travelling. If you see one around town with its smooth, near-silent mode of operation, you'd think it had been developed in the last decade or so. But electric vehicles have actually been around almost as long as the automobile itself. Yep, despite being mechanically far simpler than anything with a reciprocating engine powered by exploding hydrocarbons, the EV has suffered from stunted development and false starts for well over 160 years now. Over that time, the internal combustion engine with its thousands of moving parts and inefficient utilisation of its own fuel has reigned supreme, with the simpler and emissions-free EV left as a concept we turn to in times of crisis. So where did electric vehicles even begin? In the late 1850s, French and British engineers and inventors were keen to develop more efficient means of propulsion and turned to electric motors and lead-acid batteries. English inventor Thomas Parker, ironically from the town of Colebrookdale, was possibly the world's first environmentalist, as his concern for the inefficiency of the petrol engine and its unhealthy and damaging emissions in built-up areas led him to develop an emissions-free lead-acid battery-powered carriage. In France, an electric carriage built by Frenchman Camille Gentazzi even held a number of speed records, including being the first motorised vehicle to break the 100 km per hour speed barrier on the eve of the 20th century. Just think for a moment about how electric cars would have sat in the mix of smoky, chugging, horseless carriages with their single-cylinder petrol engines and complex handles and knobs. They would have been completely futuristic and advanced. No smoking engines, no starting crank handles, no spinning flywheels, literally just silent press-and-go operation. Surely this clean, smooth and efficient mode of transportation would triumph over the clattery, oily moving parts that were in the running to rule the new roads of the world. Sadly, no, would be the simple answer to that question. Whilst electric vehicles at the turn of the new century were indeed simple and clean, they were also hampered, as they are now, by their batteries. Despite enjoying a modest amount of excess being utilised as taxis, delivery vehicles and other town and city-based transportation, EVs struggled to gain popularity with the private vehicle sector. Petrol cars were getting faster and more technologically advanced. The clattering engines and hand-cranked starting procedure was replaced with turnkey electrical ignition and multi-cylinder engines with superior power and smoothness. Mass production brought the price of new petrol cars way down compared to their electric counterparts, and by 1912 the EV was double the price of a comparable petrol car. 
And you've got to remember that the consumer was not only taking a massive financial hit with an EV, they were also sacrificing speed and range. With most electric cars at the time capable of a paltry 35 kilometres an hour at full chat, and a range of only 50 to 60 kilometres. Not good enough for the fast-growing cities of the USA or Europe. The world was in a golden age of petrol, with cheap crude oil and reciprocating engine technology rapidly outpacing the poor, silent electric motor. Things were even better during the mid-century period of extravagant consumerism and excesses of chrome. With vast motorways and urban sprawl shooting towards the horizon, Anyone trying to run an electric vehicle would have been left very well behind. That is until the early 1970s, when world politics and greedy oil-producing nations would inadvertently create a crisis to stimulate the electric vehicle's development. Enter the 1973 oil crisis. The United States' habit of entering global events it isn't part of led to a number of OPEC nations, i.e. oil-producing nations, embargoing crude oil exports. This led to a near 300% increase in the price of oil, leading to the 1973 energy crisis. Apocalyptic queues at petrol stations and carless days resulted, and automakers scrambled to come up with something, anything that would reduce the demand for oil. Cars of the time were often enormous 8-litre V8 gas guzzlers with huge 5.5 metre long bodies, Perfect for the extravagant consumer, but not so good during an energy crisis. Suddenly those weird, silent, electrical cars we used to make at one point way back when looked really appealing. In 1974, a few boffins from a company called Sebring Vanguard came up with what can only be described as the world's first motorised wedge of cheese, the city car. This small, triangular uh, vehicle was certainly an efficient way to get around. It was, however, hopelessly slow and featured a horribly noisy brushed DC electric motor. With an awkward system of controlling the speed whereby, rather than accelerate smoothly with the press of a pedal, the motor's power was regulated via three switches which raised or lowered the voltage. This gave the occupant a choice of very slow, slow and slightly faster than walking pace, and no speed in between. As for acceleration, 0 to 100 was best measured using a calendar, and safety features were unfortunately not available. Nevertheless, the city car was once again an example of how we always seem to turn to half-baked, underperforming EVs at the last minute when we really need them, rather than developing them as a viable solution to long-term problems. This leads to EVs being seen as some sort of emergency band-aid, leading to public ridicule and lack of demand. This vicious cycle of low demand and poor development would seemingly combine the EV to a dark future. Picture the scene. Southern California, 1990. Home of golden sunshine, dry heat, desert air, and yes, severe smog. In the 20th century, Los Angeles and the San Joaquin Valley were notorious for their air pollution, caused by photochemical smog. We'll be taking a more detailed look at smog in our next episode, but in a nutshell, this particular smog caused by chemical reactions between vehicle emissions and sunlight creates a distinctive orangey-brown haze over a built-up area. Californian cities in the valley areas are particularly susceptible to smog due to the strong levels of sunlight 
and presence of temperature inversions that trap warm air and pollutants close to ground level. This makes the city unattractive and unappealing to inhabitants and visitors, as well as causing respiratory health issues and premature illness. Something had to be done. The California Air Resources Board was the direct result of measures to try and combat this ever-increasing brown fug enveloping the inhabitants of Southern California. Despite coming into existence well before the advent of modern EVs, they were one of the main forces behind the electric vehicle renaissance in the late 20th century. They essentially strong-armed stubborn automakers to develop zero-emissions vehicle technologies as set out in law. This really proves the point of how reluctant automakers were to develop zero-emissions vehicles when it took a change of regulation to make them change their ways. In response to this, and in order to even keep selling vehicles in the state of California, General Motors, Toyota and Honda, along with a few others, created the first modern zero-emission vehicles. Sadly, whilst the car makers took their first tentative steps towards an electrified future by manufacturing electric vehicles, they were reluctant to dive right into the sea of electrons and offer them up for sale. Yep, every single one of the EVs mentioned previously was only available to customers via a strict leasing program. At the end of the lease, the cars were handed back to the makers and destroyed. Cynics of the ordeal argued that car makers were being controlled by big oil interests, who would obviously lose a huge amount of their revenue if EVs became mainstream. Others suggested that the lucrative spare parts and maintenance programs would effectively dry up overnight, given that the one moving part in an EV was very unlikely to need regular looking after. The only reason given by the automakers, though, was that of potential spiralling costs to support a platform that was so new. California law states that an automaker must maintain a spare parts supply for 10 years after the last car in a production run was sold. For General Motors, the prospect of maintaining specialist parts when they had already spent over 500 million US dollars on the development of the platform would have been unthinkable. From the sounds of this, you're probably wondering why electric cars are everywhere. Surely the failure to launch in one of the most populous states of America would mean failure to launch elsewhere. Faced with ever more stringent emissions regulations to combat climate change, EVs got the development they deserved. This, plus a combination of factors such as better battery technology, better motors and more accurate and efficient control of said motors, has allowed EVs to finally compete with internal combustion cars to the point where they have captured the public's imagination. In 2011, the Nissan Leaf EV hit the market and was a huge success, selling over 50,000 units in its first two model years alone. And this was a car you could actually own, no fixed-term leases or having to return the car to Nissan after a trial period. Around the same time, Tesla launched the Model S, a four-door sedan that could, and indeed still can, outperform supercars of the period. Being in New Zealand where second-hand Japanese import vehicles dominate the used car market, we were poised to become one of the first countries to essentially test the viability of older, used electric vehicles cast off from other countries. I spoke with Dunedin-based EV advocate Pam McKinley on what it was like being an early EV adopter here in Otago and what buying an EV is like today. We actually had to get our car from um, EV... What's it called? EV something? 
EV imports? EV imports, yeah. yeah. And they were in Alexandra, I think. And um, they were basically bought in by a lines company. So they imported our car and then dropped it at some weird industrial lot in Dunedin when they dropped off a truck one day. And we had to go and find this weird place and pick up a car. It wasn't your usual buying a car experience. Yeah. And has that changed now? Has it become... Like, would you say that buying an EV is vastly different to buying a normal car now? Or is it still something that needs, I guess, a special attention? Because it's, it's, it may just be a car, but it's still such a different operating experience. Well, I think when you go into a reputable second-hand car dealer, because um, there are EV dealers that we would recommend because they're people that are really keen to have no lemons in the fleet. But then there are other people who don't specialise in electric vehicles who have come along and thought, I'll take a punt at this EV thing and stick a car on my lot. They don't necessarily understand the questions they should be asking their customer in terms of does an EV suit your driving needs or your lifestyle, what is your commute, that kind of thing. Um, because they're not for everybody, mm. but they are great around town, and I've, you know, for for ninety five, ninety nine percent of all your travel needs, an EV will do it. So, who was really pivotal in pushing for EVs in the first few years? There was Russell Watson. So he worked for North Power. He um, he organised some charging. He went, was very proactive. He took people for drives and would do kind of EV drive arounds. Um, so that bums on seats is really the way that um, the message got out. And still is the best way to get the message across to people is actually having a test drive and just realising that, you know, the world's not going to fall in because you've got a electrons powering your engine rather than fossil fuels. Mm. It drives like a car. Most people don't know how a car works. Most people don't care how an EV works. It drives like a car. We'll be hearing from Pam again and many others in our upcoming episodes. Next time on Charging Ahead, we'll be discussing the thorny topic of air quality and if the Level 4 COVID-19 lockdown last autumn gave us a glimpse into a life with a zero emissions fleet. Until then, thank you very much for listening and we'll hopefully see you in the next one.